Let me lead us in prayer. We ask our Heavenly Father that now as we come to your word, uh, that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would help us to understand your grace and understand what you are doing in your world and how it is that we should serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most amazing things about Jesus' church is the amazing grace. Grace is a simple word with massive consequences. And those consequences all come because it describes a free gift. Now, we're not really used to getting free stuff. Usually free stuff is not really that good. Uh, we expect free stuff to come with a catch. We think that there's no such thing as a free lunch, and generally that is true. But even though it's the case that when something seems too good to be true, it usually is, that is not the case with grace. Grace really is free, and it really has no strings attached. Paul puts it this way, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. No strings attached. And that's significant for us individually, but it is also significant for us as a church. It's significant for the church as a whole. And that is because the this grace is at the very foundation of Jesus' church. And it's what sets Jesus as a church apart from every other religion. We are saved by grace and we live by grace. But not only has God loved us and empowered us to love one another, he's also, by grace, given the church gifts. That's an aspect of his grace. Grace brings special gifts to the church. And these are the gifts that give the church the tools that are needed to show more grace within the church and beyond the church. And they are wonderful gifts, these gifts of grace. They're gifts from God for growing his church in the world. And when they're used rightly, they're a wonderful thing to see. They help God's people to experience him through hearing his word and, and from receiving love from each other. And when they're used well, these gifts can be a wonderful thing. But when they're not used well, they can be an absolute mess. They can hurt people. They can lead people astray. They can bring harm. That has happened to various churches throughout history. And one in particular was the church in first century Corinth. Corinth had wonderful gifts. It experienced the grace of God in so many ways, but the church in Corinth was worldly. Many of the people in the church lived just like everybody else in the world. Their attitudes were just like the world, and it had disastrous consequences. You see, they experienced the grace of God through the gifts of leadership and a whole lot of other blessings, and yet their attitudes were worldly. And so because of this, the Apostle Paul, who founded this church, wrote a letter to them. It, as it's broken up in our Bibles, has 16 chapters. 
16 chapters that seek to lovingly rebuke and correct them. And it never stops, I never stop being amazed to think that this little letter by this guy to a bunch of people has now been recorded and locked into our Bibles by the Holy Spirit so that we ourselves might benefit from it today and through it we might hear the word of God. And because that letter would not have been letter would not have been written if they weren't a church that was in trouble, we can kind of be thankful to God for their dysfunction. <laughs> they are a dysfunctional church and although that in itself is not a good thing, we get a chance to listen in on this conversation. And I trust that as we do so, we will recognise some of our own faults and failures. That we'll hear the rebuke from the Apostle to that church and in so doing, hear the rebuke of God for our church. That we might actually recognise our own blind spots. And if we do humbly admit, submit to God's good word, then what we'll do is we'll repent of those sins. We'll say we're sorry and we'll seek to use those gifts of grace for God's glory in a godly way. Over the next 12 months, we are going to devote 32 sermons to these 16 chapters. So 32 out of the next 52 weeks, God willing, we'll be heading through 1 Corinthians. We only have 1 Corinthians during the school term time, so... During school holidays, we'll do other stuff. So that's why there's only 32 out of 52. So it's not a marathon. But there are four decent runs along the way as we'll look at these 32 chapters. And we will be sitting at the feet of Jesus as we hear his word. And we'll be learning what it's like to be a loving church. And I think that's what this letter is ultimately about. A church that shows love for one another. A church that lives love. A church that knows the gifts of God and uses those in a loving way. See, this church in Corinth needed a whole lot of love. They needed to know how to love each other better. And they needed to know how to love God better. And they received love as they read the letter. Tough love, but nonetheless love. And it all begins like this in verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes. Uh, the way that they wrote letters then is they started off saying from so-and-so to so-and-so, and then a nice word of greetings. And we're going to see that there. It starts off with Paul. It's the Paul, the one who was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, the was knocked over by Jesus, blinded by the light, and commissioned and called by Jesus to be a preacher to the Gentiles. And so he did. And this radical intervention in Paul's life has characterised his future. And he draws down upon that, and he mentions it on many occasions in various places throughout the book of Acts, in fact. You see a number of times where... Paul keeps talking about this event and he will talk about it too and refer to it in this letter. Paul was a special person in the church. Uh, he didn't really receive the leadership role because he saw an ad in the paper and sent in his CV. He, he was just given it and had to live it. A little bit like King Charles III. He's just given it and he's got to live it. Paul was a special person in the church 
And this is going to be important as he writes this letter to the church in Corinth because they didn't really seem to think of him as very special at all. They're kind of like, yeah, Paul, blah, 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 but we've moved on to people who are much more impressive than him. And he's going to keep coming back and saying, well, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, I've got this gig and it's a thing. He also mentions a guy called Sosthenes. Uh, he may well be the guy who is his scribe. We don't know a whole lot about Sosthenes. He may also be the guy who's going to read out the letter to the church there in Corinth. We do hear about a guy in Acts chapter 18 who was the synagogue ruler. And when Paul is being dragged before the people to the governor and so on, uh, Sosthenes is beaten up. And we're not entirely sure why, but is it possible that Sosthenes has actually come to follow the same God who Paul does, the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe it's the same guy. And if so, what a remarkable journey to have someone who was a synagogue leader being a follower actively of Jesus. But as he writes this, well, who is he writing it to? Verse 2, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth. Uh, he's not writing to God's churches, did you see that? And he's not writing to the people's churches, he's writing to God's church. There's ultimately only one church. At its heart, there is an undivided church. It's what we speak about as we say, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, or the one holy and universal and apostolic church. It's the one church. And we see it here in Jamboree, and the same church was there in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It's an undivided church that's seen at different places at different times. And that's really important when churches like to compete with each other. You know, our church versus their church, this church versus that church. In the end, there's only one church. It's God's church. And the only empire building we should be interested in is building Jesus' empire, Jesus' kingdom. But he talks a bit more about this church, and he talks about those in Corinth, and he says that is to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. They have received a special calling, a calling to be God's holy people. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know this is a phrase that often comes up. I've called you to be my holy people. And the Apostle Paul grabs that and runs with it as they get into the New Testament. It's the same thing, the same people. They are the own special people. And that's what holy means. The word holy means being set apart. It means being different. It's a little bit like the milk that you receive before it's been homogenised. You get it in a bottle, you know, the old kind that had the metal top on the top and you, you get it and you think, oh, how do we get rid of this cream? We'll shake it up and you leave it for a while. No, it goes right back to the top. It just does not connect unless you stick it through a factory and do those magical things they do to homogenise it. But the cream on the top is kind of like the Christian's. And the rest of the milk is kind of like the rest of the world. We are supposed to be holy. We are supposed to be set apart. We are supposed to be different. The church of Corinth had not done that. They mixed right in. They were totally homogenised in every sense of the word. It would have been very, very difficult to pick the Corinthian Christians 
versus the Corinthian non-Christians. They're the kind of people that you work with for six months at the desk next door and then you suddenly discover that they happen to be regular church-going Christians and you think, wow, you hid that well. They fit in in just so many ways. And that's a problem that Paul is going to address in the coming weeks. But how is it that he made his church holy? Verse 2c says, He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is their Lord and ours. Uh, God made his people holy through Jesus. The holiness comes from being in Christ. Our holiness comes from Christ. And that's true of all people who call on Jesus' name. As we've already heard in the question time, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are then holy. It's that simple. It's all it takes to be considered holy in God's sight. We make it so complicated. We find it so hard to think that we can be holy in God's sight just by asking for it. It's like, what's the catch? What have I got to do? What am I signing up for? What's the price? What's the cost? Well, there is a cost. But it's not a cost that you do and give in order to be saved. It's the cost of being the disciple of Christ, which I think the Corinthians hadn't really quite got yet, and we'll see more of that shortly. Well, having said that, you know, who's from and who it's to he sends a special greeting verse 3 may god our father and the lord jesus christ give you grace and peace he he wants them to have more grace and peace they are wonderful words grace and peace we've already talked about grace a bit that it's this undeserved gift from god and then he throws in this other word peace in the old testament the word in the original language was shalom it's what Jews today still say. You go over to Israel, instead of saying, G'day, mate, they'll say, Shalom, mate. Maybe not. But it's the idea of, well, it's more than just good day, though. It, it's a sense of peace in the full sense. Peace with each other, peace in the land, but peace with God. And so this blessing, this simple blessing of grace and peace says, it's come as a gift and it's a gift that brings you peace with God. And what a blessing that is. Well, it's a fairly powerful way for Paul to start this letter of rebuke. Because he goes from this grace and peace to a thanksgiving. He does it in all his letters, basically. He says, from me to you, blessings and, well, here's a whole bunch of stuff I'm thankful to God for. You see it in Philippians, you see it in Romans, you see it in a whole lot of different things. And you see it here. And, it's, and he starts off in verse 4 by saying, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Right there at the start, you can see that Paul begins by thanking God for them. Given their behaviour... And given the ways in which they have strayed from God in so many ways, you kind of think, well, what is it that Paul would thank God for for them? It's kind of like, thank you so much for, oh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, 
for living in a nice place, for, I, I don't know. He does have stuff that he thanks God for for them. And the way that he thanks God and what he thanks God for gives us a bit of an insight as to what's coming afterwards in the letter. But he does start by thanking God for them and he thanks God for the gifts that they've received. Did you see that there in 1 verse 4? I thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts that he's given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. He thanks God for them. These gifts are a gift from God. God has given them these gifts so that they might serve the church with those gifts. They're a present from God that has been given to them as tools within the church. I remember when I first joined the rural fire service, after I'd learned which end of the hose to hold and how not to hurt myself too much, they gave me a uniform. I thought it was pretty dapper. And I got a fairly fancy helmet and and big boots that I clumped around in, and I got the gear. And so that when I hurt myself, I don't hurt myself perhaps as badly as I otherwise would. I got the gear, and I get access to all this gear. I pop down to the station, put my code in, and there I go. I can drive a truck at high speed with lights and sirens. If you see me driving, get out of the way, I tell you. But you see, you get all the gear so that you can serve others. And that is what God has done here for the church in Corinth. He said, I'm going to give you the gear. This is your gift of grace. The grace I'm giving you is these gifts to serve the church. And what Jesus has done there is he's given us what we need so that we can live and so we can serve. And these things that he has given, these gifts that we need, are gifts that have, verse 5, enriched the church. He says, through him, Jesus, God has enriched your church in every way. Paul's words are very carefully spoken and chosen. He talks about enriching for a reason. I think he's talking about enriching because these guys loved rich stuff. They were so worldly. They loved stuff that was shiny and that would bling. They were, they were really attracted to worldly things, the Corinthians. The Corinthians were attracted to worldly things. They would have been the people who not only had a social media account, but would have used it for every single thing they possibly could. They were sort of like Instagrammers seeking an Insta-perfect bucket list travel snap kind of life where they were just sharing everything that was attractive. And the problem was they loved these things and they wanted more of these things to happen and they thought that they could live that life and merge it with their Christian life. But we'll get more of that in a moment. God has enriched your church in every way, but how? Verse 5b, with all your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. God has made them rich with what? With eloquent words and knowledge. They appear to be very smart. They are impressive people. They're the kind of people who would have been, I reckon, awesome at dealing with the media. You know, when they blogged, they would have had hundreds of thousands of clicks. And when Q&A on the ABC needed an expert, they would have rung up someone from Corinth because they were able to really put on a show. And, you know, the big leading conferences and with a representative from Corinth. Ooh, quick, register now for an early bird rate. You see, they, they had been given the gift of the gab. And it is a gift of the gab, a gift from God. And the Lord... Sorry, Paul praises the Lord for that gift even though it's a gift that they're going to misuse and we'll see 
But he says that the receipt of that gift is actually a sign of assurance. Verse 6, he says, This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Uh, what does this verse mean? Well, I think what it's trying to say is that by receiving these gifts, they get a sense of assurance. You know, the fact that God has given them gifts to be able to speak about him with, with such skill, and a bunch of other gifts that we'll hear about too, these spiritual gifts, Paul's saying it's actually evidence that you are part of the Lord's brigade. You know, he's given you the PPE. He's given you these gifts and it shows you're part of the team. You're part of the brigade. You're part of the club. You're part of the church. There's a, it is confirming that what he said about Christ, the gospel, is in fact true, even though these gifts are being misused. They offer a sense of a, the, a confirmation about the power of the gospel. Uh, you, you know what it's like when you, you see a youth group that is being led by somebody who has confidence in the Bible and other leaders who have confidence in the Bible and they are confident in the way that they're teaching the Bible and reading the Bible and living out God's word and you see over time that the students in the youth group listen and they grow and they stay and they get through year 10 when it gets bumpy and they continue through to year 12 and you've got a, a queue of people lining up to be leaders of God's word. And you see the impact of the power of the gospel that is an evidence of the truth of the gospel. I think there's something happening here as well. They've received these gifts and what it does is it confirms that what he told them about Christ is true. And all of this combines to show that they've been truly blessed. Verse 7. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly await for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got it all. You've got everything in it, every spiritual need, spiritual gift that you need. All that they need so that they can do what? What are they supposed to do? What is the, the stance of the Christian? It is to wait. We wait. The proper stance of a Christian is to eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be people who are patient but are also impatient. It's kind of like we're living in a caravan as we wait for our house to be built on the front of the block. Or it's like we're sitting at a railway station waiting and waiting and waiting for the train to come that's going to take us to a place we're looking forward to. Or maybe we're standing looking at the microwave waiting for the beep as it finishes its defrosting. We're waiting and anticipating. That's how Christians are supposed to live. We are supposed to be eagerly waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why is that day important? Why are we people who shouldn't get too comfortable? Why are we kind of nomads waiting to find our home? Well, we read in verse 8, He will keep you Strong to the end, so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. We are to be people who wait for that day because on that day when Jesus returns, we will be blameless. Now, I wonder whether or not when we first came in, I said, take out your little piece of paper and I want you to write down just for yourself 
what it is that you are most looking forward to about the coming of the Lord Jesus. What for you is the thing that you know that when he comes, it's like, terrific, it's the end of this and it's the start of this. What is it that you would be waiting for? I'd be surprised if many of you came and showed to me and said, for the day that I'll be blameless. But that is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that he is waiting with them for when Jesus comes back and they will be blameless. I don't think that's naturally what I would think about the day of the Lord Jesus' coming. I, I think of the time when I'll be uh, able to, to enjoy the presence of Jesus fully and, and not be distracted by the worldliness and all, all these other things. Maybe you might think over morning tea what that might have been that you naturally would have put down. But the Apostle Paul says it today for us to look forward to being blameless, truly blameless. There are so many things in my own life where I know that I am guilty of sin when I'm not blameless. I think of what I say. I think of what I do. I think of what I think. I think of what I don't say. I think of what I don't do. I think of what I don't think. And the more I read the Bible, the more I realise how far I fall short of the standard that God has set. And as I'm reading God's word and he talks about grace and peace, I think, yes, I'm so pleased that I've received by grace that peace. And as I reflect upon that, I think part of that is being forgiven. What an extraordinary thing that God would look on me right now as though I had never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's how I remember that word justified. From the moment that I said to Jesus, I am sorry for how I've lived. Will you forgive me? I want you to be my Lord. He said, I forgive you. And Jody, I don't look at your sin anymore. I say, what do you mean you don't look at my sin? Do you want to borrow my glasses? I mean, it's very obvious my sin. He said, I'm not looking at your sin. I'm looking at Jesus' sin, which, by the way, doesn't exist. So you're pretty sweet in all of this. It's extraordinary to be looked at that way by God. But yet I know that it is not a reality in my life. I long for the day when how he looks at me will be how I will be. That day when I will be blameless. And I wonder if you look forward to that day as well. And indeed, if you have not fully trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back, you will not be blameless. And that will be a, the most seriously bad thing that could ever happen to you, is to be found not blameless in his sight. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, we will be blameless. But I wonder if you long for that day. Because we should. We should long for the day when Jesus will return. But I wonder whether or not we, we don't long for that day. We've got pretty content with the now. Maybe we've fallen in love with living in the caravan. And we don't really care about the house that's being built on the front. Maybe we've grown to like the train station that we're spending so much time with those recorded announcements saying that the trains are late and out of timetable order. We're saying, well, that's lovely. Or maybe you've stood there looking at the microwave as it's been defrosting that three kilo slab of beef and it beeps and you think, I'll put it on for another 10 minutes. I'm just loving standing here and waiting. 
Have we fallen in love with the now and not the coming of Jesus? It's easy to do, isn't it? So how will we do that? How will we have that hope in the future? Well, we read in verse 9 that God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says. How do we know that he'll keep us strong to the end? It's because he's faithful. When he says it, he does it, unlike anybody else. If I say, oh, yeah, I'll be there, mate. It's like, oh, well, hopefully he'll be there and we'll see. But when God says, I'll be there, he will. He is faithful. And not only is he faithful, he is our partner, 9b, and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a partnership. It's a, it's a fellowship. It's the same word there. It's a commonness, a common thingness with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are in partnership. We're in fellowship. We are in common. We're in the club. We're in the brigade. We're in the team. We're in the church. And because of that, he will never leave us alone. That is a great relief, isn't it? A great relief, especially in those moments of difficulty, of pain, of uncertainty, of fear, depression, anxiety, and just a sense that your body's falling apart. Jesus will never leave us alone. That is a great relief. I think that's what grace and peace really looks like, doesn't it? Being united with Jesus in partnership with him. But we know that and yet we still need God's help. What for? To help us to wait we need God's grace to help us wait. We need God's gracious gifts so that his church will be encouraged to trust in Jesus and to wait. We, like the church in Corinth, will be tempted to love the gifts but ignore the giver. We'll be tempted to find riches in the abilities that he's given us. But as we receive the benefits of the gifts that he has given his church by grace, then he will help us wait and he will hold us fast. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gifts of grace, for grace and peace. We thank you for what you have given your church and we pray that we in your church might use your gifts for your glory. And as we await the return of Jesus, lead us to be people who wait with patience and expectation for that day when we will truly be blameless in, your, in, in, in reality, not just in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name.